Come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us pray. Gracious God, you have given us minds to know you, hearts to love you, voices to sing your praise. You have even redeemed those hearts and minds and voices by your grace so that they're all attuned to you through Jesus Christ. We pray now that your Holy Spirit would be present with us, that we may celebrate your glory and worship you in spirit and in truth through Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Our first hymn is number 16, Thee We Adore, Eternal Lord. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we, are, we have come to worship God and celebrate the presence of Christ in word and sacrament. Let us call to mind and confess our sins so that we come properly understanding our place and the importance of Christ for our life. Let us confess our sin together. Most merciful God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
We confess that we have sinned in thought, word, and deed. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We have loved ourselves most of all. In your mercy, forgive what we have been. Help us to amend what we are and direct what we shall be, that we may do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with you, our God. Amen. Please stand for the assurance of pardon. The Lord is merciful and gracious. He is slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. He does not deal with us after our sins, nor reward us according to our iniquities. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us in Jesus Christ. The good news of the gospel is that all those who have faith in Jesus Christ and repent of their sin are truly forgiven of all their sin. This is the good news of the gospel, and let us respond. Praise be to God. Followers of Christ, the letter of James says, Do not speak evil against one another, and then says not to judge your brother. Jesus told his disciples, Judge not that you be not judged. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly take the speck out of your brother's eye. Every time in worship we confess our sin, and after the pardon we hear this call to obedience. It's a general confession of sin, so we have made a general confession. We don't, I don't try to read into your hearts and minds or, or analyze your lives to, to list all these particular sins that you've done or list my own, because this is a general confession. We're just stating the general reality of our sin and need for God's grace. So we confess our disobedience, transgression, helplessness, our total dependence upon God's grace given to us in Jesus Christ. But this is very definitive for us as Christians, not only in our relationship with God, but within our relationship with each other. From this confession, we learn to examine ourselves in private and acknowledge our personal sins to God. And any honest self-examination sees the things that we personally have done wrong. And of course, privately as well as publicly, we must hear that declaration of pardon, the good news of the gospel. Um, every day I try to have morning prayer, and in that I have memorized the general prayer of confession, uh, standard confession, and then I have also memorized a number of verses that essentially just set out the gospel very clearly, and I hear that even as I say it, and I'm reminded of this reality for my life. We each need to hear that declaration of pardon, the good news of the gospel, on an ongoing basis. But there's also something else to it. If we know how great our sin is, and yet we still consider ourselves Christians, and that we've been made right with God through Christ, then we need to do the same for others in the church. We need to have that assumption that our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ are are belong to him, and that they have been forgiven as well. So when we see the faults and the sins of other Christians, and we find ourselves beginning to wonder whether they really are followers of Christ, we need to consider ourselves. We need to think about ourselves, and if I have been forgiven by Christ, and even though I still mess up and struggle with sin, am still considered to be a follower of Christ and love him, and he has forgiven me, we need to exercise the same kind of charity for each other. So we need to uh, not be hypocritical Christians who 
claim one thing for ourselves but aren't willing to give that for other Christians. The truth is we're not Christians because of how well we live, but because God in Christ has forgiven us. So do not judge one another. This is God's will for us in Christ, and let us say, Amen. The hymn is, Though Troubles Assail Us, number 95. Let us bow our heads in prayer. Almighty God, our most blessed Father, who has shown us great compassion and true mercy and unending kindness, all clothed in the beauty of your grace, we address our prayers to you, O Lord. Through Jesus Christ, you have wrapped us in your goodness and patience and love and righteousness. And once we were dressed in the smelly rags of sin and wretchedness, but in Christ you have dressed us in your garments of grace and made us a people holy in Christ. So our thankfulness burst from our hearts, and we take time to express that thankfulness to you. For in Christ we are what you created us to be, and Christ has made us real human beings bearing your image. And so, with heartfelt mercy and compassion, we pray for those who are still clothed in sin and brokenness, bound up by the powers of this present age, and we also pray for the needs of those who share with us in the resurrection life of Jesus Christ. We make our prayers to you for those who protect us and watch out for us, 
soldiers and law enforcement officers, security officers. We thank you for those who come to mind, like Mike and Seth and Douglas Ryan and the um, and for Sam Hannum, for others we know. We pray that their work would be done with care and respect for those they they uh, meet. We thank you for the order you give to human society so that while wickedness and sin and self-interest and exploitation reside in this world, (coughs) you do provide for the general welfare of humanity. (coughs) We also pray for peace and peaceful government in nations that are being ripped apart or have atrocious governments like in Russia or Syria, Afghanistan, and the disorder in Mexico and other nations where there's violent conflict. Here are prayers for those who rule and govern us and rule in other nations. Merciful Lord, we pray for those we know who live in broken, fragmented families and communities, who are exploited and abused, who make sexual immorality and hatred a way of life. We are deeply concerned about the uh, human trafficking that goes on and is is prevalent in this country. We pray that it would be stopped and those who commit such crimes would be apprehended. We pray that those who were taken and held against their will would be released. We pray that the church can bring the message of Christ to them and that they would be raised up into the new community of your forgiveness, grace, peace, and love in Christ. Here are our prayers for those who we may not know in name, but we know by report. Gracious God, we pray for the Christian church. We thank you for the freedoms of the church that we have in this country, and we pray that you would stop those who would, who would want to take them away. We pray for all the people of Christ to live for him not just in this country, but in this world. And now we remember the Christian communities in Iraq, Pakistan, North Korea, Saudi Arabia, China, Egypt, and in other countries where they are threatened with physical harm and arrest. We pray you would thwart the plans of our enemies, help these Christians to respond with forbearance and love as you have loved us. And here are our prayers for churches in other countries and our missionaries who work among them, for the Hop family, the Delphils in Haiti, and for the Rich Line family in Uruguay. Here are our prayers for the church in other nations. And we pray for the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, and may this church mature in its knowledge of the gospel. May we act with humility and patience and charity in our study of Scripture and in our attitude towards other churches and when complaints and disagreements arise. We do pray for um, Harvest Church and the impending trial over there. We pray that that would be resolved in a way that is right and faithful to you with forgiveness and repentance. Hear our prayers, O Lord, for the OPC. On our hearts also, Heavenly Father, are those in need within this congregation and among our friends. We pray for those who are in poor health or have other needs, for Don and Luca, Frida, Jeff and Fawn, Eduardo, Tammy's family. 
our friends Becky and Angie, Phil and Vicki, Bob, Tom, Caroline, Karen, and others we name to you in silence. For your healing we ask and for grace to stand firm in Christ even in weakness. Heal these we have named, provide for their needs, and may we encourage them and give them aid. Bless Providence Church to be joined together in love and peace and in our witness to Christ. Give us fortitude in this world where there are many who attack us for following Jesus Christ. Here are our prayers for those who have suffered under such attacks. To you, Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, do our prayers ascend, for we make them in the name of Jesus Christ, who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let us present our gifts and offerings to the Lord. Let us pray now for the reading and the preaching of God's word. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful 
for your word. May we receive it as your true and authoritative word for us. And may it draw us to your heart that we would trust, know and trust your love for us and we would respond in praise and thankfulness and obedience. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Our reading begins in Daniel, chapter 7. Excuse me. Verse 15 through the end of the chapter. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet, and about the ten horns that were on his head, and the other horn that came up, and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things, and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them, until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, as, the fourth beast, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms. And it shall devour the whole earth, and trample it down, and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns... Out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones, and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times in the law. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment. And his dominion shall be taken away, to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominion shall serve and obey them. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. Psalter responses in your bulletin. <clears throat> o Lord, God of vengeance, rise up, O judge of the earth. O Lord, how long shall the wicked They pour out their arrogant words. They crush your people, O Lord. 
They kill the widow and the sojourner. And they say, the Lord does not see. Understand, O dullest of the people. He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? The Lord knows the thoughts of man. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord. To give him rest from days of trouble. For the Lord will not forsake his people. For justice will return to the righteous. Next we read from the book of Revelation, chapter 21. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels. And on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth Topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, and the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. But its light will the nations, by its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. 
and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And finally, our gospel reading from Matthew, chapter 5. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The word of the Lord. Jesus taught his disciples that they will be persecuted. And our gospel lesson is one of those teachings. At the beginning of his ministry, Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then later in the gospels, Jesus told of, of coming opposition in the world. He said, then they, will del- then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Well, it sounds a bit overwrought, doesn't it? I mean, maybe that was the case when the church was in the Roman Empire, but here we are today, and it just seems a little overstated, and perhaps we have to worry about something in the future. Not every nation persecutes the church. The governments of the European nations, the United States, many of the South American nations, the Philippines, Kenya, have been docile with the church. Many have even been friendly with the church. Maybe less so today, but for the most part, the church under these governments in the last few years has not experienced an outright assault against it. Therefore, Jesus' words sound extreme to people like us sitting here today. Maybe something that will happen in the future. Indeed, some biblical interpretations push major oppositions to the church into the future, and they major on that. That's, that's their focus. They want to talk about some major tribulation or opposition in the future. And then when antagonism flares up, Christians who adhere to this kind of doctrine think it might be the end times, and so they talk a lot about the end times. But part of the reason Jesus' teaching sounds extreme is because we live in a nation with a government that is relatively friendly to the church. To Christians and churches that exist under other governments, Jesus' teaching and the book of Daniel does not sound extreme or unrealistic at all. When we listen to scripture, it's good for us to remember where we are in our point of reference, and that's not necessarily the point of reference for other Christians and other people in the world. Antagonism against the church may be growing in the United States, but the assault Assault is in full swing in other nations in this world right now. Now, I'll never forget a middle-aged man who visited our church several years ago. Some of you will will remember him. He came in late, and he sat in the back. After the conclusion of the worship service, he came up to me. He bowed. He took my hand, and he kissed it. Clearly, there was some confusion here. He told me that he was going around to the Orthodox churches, capital O, Orthodox churches, to try to elicit support for a proposal in the United States Congress that would push for the creation of a separate district in Iraq for Christians. This was during the Iraqi war and the upsurge of that uh, terrorist group called ISIS. 
And I told him we were not that kind of orthodox church, and we did not try to insert ourselves into the legislative process in Congress. He pulled out some maps of Iraq. He showed where the Christians had historically lived, and then he showed me a map that highlighted the Christian communities more recently, and they had drastically shrunk, and they had sort of been combined or predominantly were in one region of Iraq. Moses was deeply concerned for the Christians in Iraq because they were being targeted and persecuted, and he believed the new government there would foster this. Therefore, he wanted a region that could be a safe zone for Christians. And if the United States pushed for it, he thought that that could be done. My heart went out to him, but there was not much we could do other than pray. And we have been doing that. We've been praying in our worship ever since for the church in places like Iraq. There are always opponents and mockers and troublemakers in the government against the church. But sometimes a particularly heinous ruler or government pops up. The course of history is moving along with one nation superseding another nation, one ruler after another, government after government replacing each other, and suddenly one jumps out above the others. And that was the case with the Greek king Antiochus IV in the second century before Christ was born. Now, Daniel's vision in chapter 7 has roots in history. It's a certain style or genre of writing, and it's included in the Old Testament with the prophets because Daniel is given wisdom by God, so that sort of lumps him in with the other prophets. But its imagery and visions provides background for another style of writing called apocalyptic, which was popular in the last century before Christ and into the first century after Christ's birth. So Daniel sort of precedes that, sort of starts to move into that kind of of, uh, genre of writing. Daniel uses figures and symbols to show us history in this world with God. It may not be the way that we write history today, but it was not unusual back in his day to write history that way. Daniel is not an ahistorical book or an extraterrestrial writing. Many spiritual writings are just that way, especially in the ancient world. It it seems more spiritual the less it is connected to history and this world. And so there are a lot of writings like that. Many spiritual writings are, are just esoteric. They are above history, you might say, like the Jewish Kabbalah or the writings of Madame Blavatsky, who wrote the key to theosophy. These sound more mystical and enlightened. But Daniel uses imagery and symbols about real events in history, like verses 19 through 20 in our reading. The fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrible, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, which, and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped the residue with its feet and concerning the other horns that were on its head. And it goes on. This sounds strange to us, but it was very familiar to the first hearers or first readers of Daniel. This would not have been so strange to them. It was a time when God's people, the Jews, were being horrendously attacked. There was a crisis at that time, and we might call it the Antiochian crisis, named after the Greek king Antiochus IV. Verses 24 through 25 refer to him. And this is what they say. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise. 
And another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law. And they shall be given over, given into his hand for a time, two times, and half a time. That's talking about Antiochus IV. Now, right away, we need to sort a few things out here because it is a little bit confusing to us. We're not used to those kinds of symbols and figures. And there have been a lot of interpretations of it over the years in the church. And some of that has, I think, been misleading. So right away, we need to sort out a few things. Daniel's vision and the interpretation both begin with the four animals. And I preached on that last week. The lion, the bear, the leopard, and the beast. These are four kingdoms that had dominated that part of the world one after the other. So the four beasts, the four animals refer to these four kingdoms. The first kingdom was Babylon or Babylonian, and the last was Greek. The two in between are probably the Medes and the Persians, but there is some debate about that. Darius, one of the kings in that time, was a Mede, and Cyrus was a Persian. So it could be that that they could be separated like that. There's been a long-standing interpretation in the church that the four are Babylon, and then it combines the Medes and the Persian kingdom into one, and then you have the Greek kingdom, and then the Roman Empire. The Medes and the Persians linked together as one kingdom. However, the Roman Empire began to be included in the four-kingdom pattern during New Testament times after Rome had become the dominant empire in the world. The book of Daniel is mostly concerned, even if we don't quite know what it is in the middle, the book of Daniel is mostly concerned with the Babylonian and the Greek kingdoms. As I said, the book of Daniel has roots in the history of time from the dominion of Babylon to Greece, and this is basically the the 5th through the 2nd centuries before Christ. The Greek empire was forged, kind of came into its power under uh, Alexander the Great in the 4th century B.C., in the middle of the 4th century B.C., before Christ. Alexander the Great led an army out of Macedonia and Greece into Persia to the east and to the south through Palestine, and he marched around into Egypt, and there's some really fascinating stories about all that. Essentially, he opened all this territory up to the Greeks. He came back when he crossed the Hellespont, which is, is that area where Europe sort of touches into Asia, um, there's, a, there's a gap there and a wide uh, it's, it's a channel of water that flows through from one lake or sea to another. And he crossed that on these major pontoon boats. He put His army built the pontoon side by side. They spread dirt on it, and he marched his men over. And when he came to the other side, he threw a spear down on the ground, and he, he claimed it. He claimed basically Asia for Greece. And he did that because Darius, the, one of the Persians, had done that sometime, you know, many years before when they, he tried to invade Greece. So Alexander the Great was saying payback time. And he came in and he, he was a masterful, I think a very tyrannical, harsh kind of uh, general, but he was masterful and he was able just to defeat the, Greek, uh, the Persian army and spread through that whole part of the world. So he opened it up to the Greeks. He died suddenly at the age of 32. So think about that. He basically conquered everything to the Indus River. The Indus River is on the east side uh, where it's sort of a border with India. And so you have that whole area 
from the Hellespont over by Greece all the way over to Indus River, down through Palestine, over into Egypt and Libya, conquered all that by the time he was 32. I'm way past 32, and I don't have those aspirations. <laughs> That's amazing. His rule was divided among four. After he died, his rule was, was divided, his kingdom was divided among four or five of his generals, and two of those were Seleucus and Antigonus. Antigonus ruled that, uh, the area known as Asia Minor, where modern Turkey and Syria and Palestine are all located. And you might hear a little bit of a similarity between Antigonus and Antiochus. It's because he's named after him, but he's the fourth Antiochus after. And it gets so confusing. You have Ptolemy in Egypt, who was one of the generals who was given the territory of Egypt after Alexander the Great died. And then you have Ptolemy, one, two, three, four, five, six. You know, it goes on. So they, they did that just to confuse us in the modern world today. So two of these generals were Seleucus and Antigonus, and Antigonus ruled that area known as Asia Minor. Seleucus took the large eastern part of the Greek empire. Antiochus IV, who we're talking about here in Daniel, was a descendant of these two lines. The ten horns are ten rulers who rose up in the Greek empire and were predecessors and or contemporaries of Antiochus IV. So you have the the ten kings or kingdom, I mean the four kings or kingdoms, and you have the ten rulers. Now we don't know for sure who the ten were, but we do have some of the we do know some of the players, and I'll mention two or three of them to help you understand what kind of a ruler Antiochus the Fourth was. So there was Antiochus the Third, and guess who he was? He was Antiochus the Fourth's father, and he was king um, before Antiochus the Fourth. He met a violent death. Although his son was in Rome at the time, it's thought that Antiochus IV was responsible for his father's death in some way, that he had he'd put it into play. Antioch, Antiochus III may well be one of those three horns that fell. Another is the younger son of Antiochus IV, uh, I'm sorry, Antiochus, yeah, Antiochus IV's elder brother. So let's make this simpler. Antiochus IV had a nephew, his brother's son who was proclaimed king and acted as co-ruler with Antiochus IV. So when Antiochus IV was eligible for the throne, he shared it with his nephew for five years. And then guess what happened to his nephew? He was killed. The Greek king of Egypt, Ptolemy VI, was Antiochus IV's uncle, and he had some claim on the throne that Antiochus IV wanted. So Antiochus IV invaded Egypt, defeated and captured Ptolemy VI, thus preventing him from taking the throne. Now with these examples, you can see that various Greek rulers or potential rulers were plucked up and fell, as it is said in Daniel's vision, verses 8 and 20. Daniel saw one horn that rose above the rest. He was different, as, as, the, as, our, as Daniel says. In verse 20, it says, And about the ten horns that were on the head of the beast of that kingdom, and the other horn that came up, and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things, and that seemed greater than its companions. It was different. It sort of stood out. This was Antiochus IV, and he was a particularly monstrous ruler. The symbolism of the eyes suggests covetousness. 
eyes that lust, that covet, that want something that doesn't belong to them. Antiochus IV was arrogant, and he wanted the throne, even if it meant killing his family members to get it. He coveted the throne. And the mouth is a symbol for Antiochus IV speaking, right? In Daniel's vision, he explicitly speaks great things. That means things that are against God himself. Verse 25 says, he spoke words against the Most High. Antiochus IV was a ruler who stood out from the others in his wickedness. This is not to say the other rulers were were good or merciful or or faithful kinds of, of kings and rulers, but they didn't compare in Daniel's vision to Antiochus IV. Now, after he secured his throne, Antiochus IV led his army into Judah and captured Jerusalem. He was determined to Hellenize it. That means turn the Jews into good Greeks with Greek culture and Greek religion. So in 167 BC, Antiochus IV sent his soldiers into the temple and they desecrated it. They conquered the city of Jerusalem and then he sent his soldiers into the temple of the Jews and they desecrated it. They went so far as to replace the altar to God with an altar to Zeus. Antiochus demanded that the Jews offer sacrifices of pigs and other unclean animals on the altar to Zeus on a regular basis. It was his aim to change the holy calendar for the Jews, just like the church today has a calendar we follow, Advent, Christmas, Epiphany, you know, uh, crucifixion, all that, resurrection, so the Jews had a calendar as well. Um, and so his aim was to change that calendar. Instead of observing Passover and the Feast of Weeks and the Feast of Booths, they were to observe the religious calendar of Zeus. And instead of following the Torah, they were to follow the Greek ordinances. So if you look at verse 25, it says, Antiochus IV thought he could change the times and the law. That's the Jewish times of the Jewish calendar and the law or the Torah of the Jews. Antiochus IV was like a bulldozer. Daniel says God had set the changing of kingdoms, raising up one ruler, bringing down another. Antiochus IV stands out as one who comes at it sideways. He's like a bulldozer moving at high speed, smashing through history. Now, it's one thing to hear about the uprising of Antiochus IV. It's another to live through it. For the Jews, this was a terrifying and dangerous time. One of the Jewish writers' uh, writings that's not included in our Bibles, but it is a Jewish writing called First Maccabees, writes about this this period and described what uh, describes what Antiochus' army did to the Jews. It says, "Where the book of the covenant was found in the possession of anyone of any Jew, or if anyone adhered to the law, the decree of the king condemned him to death, him or her. They kept using violence against Israel against those." found month after month in the cities. And according to the decree of Antiochus IV, they put to death the women who had their children circumcised. Daniel 7 conveys the suffering and hardship for the Jews living under Antiochus IV. Verse 21 says, As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. And verse 25 says, He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High. The people of God groaned under Antiochus IV. Well, God gives us comfort with Daniel chapter 7. 
and he was giving comfort to the Jews. How long, O Lord, is a cry that comes up frequently in the Bible. It was in our Psalter response. How long, O Lord? And the church has always had to live with governments that act contrary to our worship, our faith, and our life. But every once in a while, a horrific ruler or government rises up and the church suffers greatly under it. The Christians under Kim Jong-un over in North Korea or under the Myanmar military junta are living under very, very harsh anti-Christian conditions. And we should never minimize their hardship. We must pray for Christians and the church in this world that is being attacked by hostile governments. I pray for them every week, and I name the nations that I know where such persecution is happening. I just kind of in my mind go through sort of Africa and Asia and over into the Americas, and I just name specific nations like Pakistan and Sudan and Syria and Egypt and so on. And I pray that God would shut down the wicked rulers and governments who attack the church. I pray that the pastors of the churches would faithfully preach Christ to the congregations, that the Holy Spirit would comfort them, that they would be able to persevere in their hardship and that their suffering would be joined with Christ's suffering and thus made holy. But there are times when I stop and think about how easy it is to pray, to pray these things for other Christians who are suffering while I live in comfort and freedom. It's easy to minimize what the persecuted church is experiencing. Consequently, I pray that I would not ask for other Christians what I would not want for myself. It's easy when you're not being persecuted to pray that other Christians who are being persecuted would persevere. We should never take lightly persecution and attacks on the church. These are our brothers and sisters in Christ. Pray with compassion and empathy What would you be thinking if you were living under a terrible ruler who was attacking you and your faith and worship? You would be asking, how long? You would be crying out to God, how long, O Lord? And you would be saying it over and over again. Make your prayers for Christians who are suffering under hostile governments, how long, O Lord, prayers, and not just hang in their prayers. God hears the prayers of his people, and he comforts them. The people, the Jews in the days of Daniel, were praying these kind of prayers. How long, O Lord? This is what Daniel does. It brings comfort to us. God gives us these visions of Daniel to bring comfort to the Jews in Daniel's day and to us. That's the point of the last line of verse 25. And they shall be given into his hand, into the hand of Antiochus IV for a time, two times and half a time. And I realize the ESV says times there, not two times, but it's double times. It's time and another time, so double time. Some have thought this refers to the length of time that God's people must suffer under terrible persecution, that somehow this is a, a designated time, uh, period of time. In the case of the Jews, it really can't be neatly reconciled with, siled with how long they did suffer under the sacrilege of Antiochus IV in Jerusalem. There's always sort of a leftover remainder. You know when you do division and uh, you, multi- you divide out uh, the problem and then you have a remainder? Well, that's the, that's the thing. 
when you try to apply it as three and a half years or something like that, there's always this remainder that doesn't just quite fit into it. So another way to hear this verse has to do with the progression in the numbering. These are undefined periods of time. They're not years, okay? They're undefined periods of time. There is a Hebrew word or an Aramaic word for years, and it's not used here. The line could also be translated one period, two periods, and half a period. Three and a half periods of unspecified time, which that could go on for a very long time if it's not specified. It threatens to extend itself longer. So you have one period, and then a double period, and then you could have a quadruple period, and then eight periods, and then 16 periods. You see what could be happening with this? It's doubling, which means it's getting worse. It's just going on and on and on. But in verse 25, that pattern is interrupted. One period, a double period, and then a half a period. The unspecified duration, this ongoing, this time of unspecified duration is stopped short. The double period does not go on into a quadruple period of time. It doesn't go on forever. So God puts an end to it. God judges the rulers and governments of this world that attack and persecute his people. And he judges them now and not just in the future. So in the case of the Antiochus crisis, Daniel 7 shows us the court of God that makes judgment on Antiochus IV. Verse 9 says, As I looked, thrones were placed, the Ancient of Days took his seat, seat, and the court, court sat in judgment. And then the interpretation that we heard this morning picks up on that. The comfort is that God hears our prayers, he hears the prayers of his people, and he puts an end to the persecution of the church. God does not leave us trapped in the turbulent succession and crises of rulers and governments in, this, in the history of this world. He doesn't leave us sitting in that just to go on forever. There is what you might call the relative normality of one government coming after another, such as with the dynasties of kings. One king is, is, uh, dies or is killed, another king comes along, or one country with, uh, in our country, it's with our presidents replacing another. As the governments and rulers succeed, succeed each other, there are always changes in policies and social disruptions and international disturbances and so on. And you could say, and I'm not trying to say any of this is necessarily good, but it's just sort of the normal course of things. Just think of the differences between the administrations of Bush and Obama, Trump, and Biden. It's been a very topsy-turvy, it's been very topsy-turvy as we move along with our government. But there's a certain normalcy to it. We Christians bounce along with the regular flow of governmental change, like being in an airplane that's experiencing turbulence. That is distressing enough, but then every once in a while, a major governmental crisis blows up and we Christians are thrown about. Major governmental crisis, such crises such as the French Revolution, which tried to de-Christianize all of France. And it required the clergy to swear an oath of loyalty to the French Constitution instead of to the Pope. Now, we're Protestants, so we think, well, no big deal. I'm not going to swear an oath of allegiance to the Pope. But you know what? That uh, French Revolution, they would have required me 
to swear an oath of allegiance, even if, it's, if I never have to the Pope, I'd have to swear one to their constitution. So it was still the same problem, loyalty to the French constitution over any other authority. Those who refused the oath were labeled fanatics, and guess what their sentence was? Ten years in prison for not doing that. Or the crisis of political authority in communist Russia under Stalin. He tried to force militant atheism on the republic. Stalin said the new socialist man was an atheist man, free of the religious change that had helped to bind him to class oppression. He shuttered, Stalin shuttered churches, synagogues, and mosques. He ordered the killing and imprisonment of thousands of religious leaders in an effort to eliminate even the concept of God. He didn't want anyone talking about God anymore. Or there's the rise of the terror organization called ISIS in the Middle East as it invaded areas with Christians and demanded that they convert or die. This has been another governmental crisis for the church. Today, we might wonder if there is crisis for the church brewing under the government of the United States. Turbulence, so far, that might turn into a bulldozer. I know that's on Christians' minds. There's a wonderful gospel comfort in our lesson from Daniel, and we hear it in verse 18. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. And that's a central theme in Daniel chapter 7. In our reading, it comes up in verse 18, verse 22, and again in verse 27. God will give a kingdom to his people. Jesus makes a similar promise in our gospel reading from Matthew. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I want you to think about this kingdom of God for a moment. It's an alien kingdom. It's the kingdom that's promised comes from God. It's given. It doesn't evolve or come out of the history of governments and rulers in this world. The kingdom comes from outside the world into it from God. It doesn't grow out of the flow of history. And because it's an alien kingdom, it doesn't have the DNA of governments in this world. Therefore, we should never identify it with the rulers and governments that do exist in this world. The kingdom that God gives has only one king. Christians, especially Christians who are disenfranchised, who kind of live on the edge of society, they get... We, Christians like that get excited about the promise of receiving a kingdom. Maybe some uh, greedy Christians do too. It's very exciting to get the idea that, that I get to be a king, that the, receiving a kingdom means that we can be kings. I've heard Christians say that. They talk about how they are going to be set up as kings in God's kingdom, and they will rule with God. They don't eliminate God from it, but they see themselves as kings or queens in it. And it begins to sound like each Christian will have his own little kingdom. That kind of reminds me of the Mormons who say that each Christian are going to get their own planet to rule. We must be clear about this. There's only one throne in God's kingdom. There's only one king, and that is God who raises up his son, Jesus Christ, to sit on the throne. Scripture speaks of a sharing in the rule of Christ. It's like we're part of his court, but we'll never be kings alongside of him. Jesus Christ will always be king over us. And lastly, we receive the kingdom of God through Christ. The kingdom of God comes into this world with Jesus Christ. It doesn't come into the world in any other way. It's not like uh, governments doing their best and on their best day are going to somehow create the kingdom of God. It's not going to come in that way. We cannot produce it on our own. 
The only way we can enter the kingdom of God is through Jesus Christ. The only way it comes into this world is through Jesus Christ. The only way we can enter it is through Jesus Christ. He's like the door to God's kingdom. So we enter it with him or we're not going to enter it. The way we enter God's kingdom is by faith in Jesus Christ as our king, the one who delivers us from the ongoing progression of governmental chaos and crisis in this world, not to mention our sin. You receive God's kingdom through Jesus Christ. What kind of kingdom is this? Well, it's not like the governments of this world. If if it's not like the governments of this world, what is it? Well, Jesus used many images to teach his disciples about the kingdom of God. And following Jesus, his apostles also taught the church about God's kingdom. And one such image, which happens to be one of my more favorite ones, one such image is the city, the New Jerusalem in Revelation 21. Now, it's never called the kingdom of God in that text, but that's what it is. In the New Jerusalem, God is seated on a throne. It says that at the beginning of chapter 21. And verse 24 says the kings of the earth shall bring their glory into it. In this city of God's kingdom, things that are in the kingdoms of this world are absent. That's one way to talk about God's kingdom. Is The things that we see going on in the, the governments and the nations of this world that are horrible are not going on in God's kingdom. They, there are no covetous, arrogant, blasphemous rulers. There's not a single one. To be in this kingdom, you must submit to the Lord of heaven and earth, God and his son, Jesus Christ. There's nothing abominable or false like what was in the kingdom of the Babylonians and the Greeks. Thus, life in the kingdom of God is peaceful and calm. In the city of God's kingdom, there's no threat or danger that might overwhelm the city. The gates are always open. The walls are not for protection. They're for beauty. How different the kingdom of God is from our cities where we must be cautious and we live in fear of attack. In the city of God are a multitude of people who live in love and peace and joy with each other because they're Christ's people. They've been cleansed of their sin and they have been made complete in holiness. So how are we to live while the governments of this world continue? Well, we must not think that now we are to brace ourselves for persecution and crisis, somehow screw up our courage and dig down deep, and now you've been motivated at least for a couple hours. You can go out into the world and stand firm. Don't think that way. Rather, God fortifies you with Daniel 7, particularly his promise in Daniel 7. He gives you a kingdom, and it's not like the governments of this world. His kingdom comes through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came, and God's kingdom is sure. With this promise, he strengthens you even while you endure persecutions and terrible rulers. He also fortifies you at the Lord's table where we commune with Christ. Trust his promise that's made complete in Christ, and let's come to the Lord's feast. Let us pray. Let your continual mercy, O Lord, cleanse and defend your church. And because we cannot continue in safety without your help, protect and govern us always by your right judgment of the nations and the presence of Jesus Christ. Through him, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Please stand. Let us profess our, or confess our faith with the creed. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, 
maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, through whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And we believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Our hymn, as we come to the Lord's table, is number 310, Rejoice, the Lord is King.
Lord has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him, and he remembers his covenant, his promise forever. We offer our thanksgiving to the Lord, Lord, and we receive his nourishment for our new life with confidence in the promise of Christ. There are lots of promises in Scripture that come to us. But Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. As they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. This is the Lord's table. He invites us to feast with him. Those who come to this holy meal promise to trust and love and obey him as the Lord of every realm of life. Think about that in relationship to what you just heard from Daniel. And to live in love and concern for each other. It's my privilege as Christ's minister to invite all who have been baptized, who have professed their faith in Jesus Christ, and our communicant members of a Christian church to come to this, the Lord's table. Join with me now in giving thanks to God for his salvation and life for us in Jesus Christ. The Lord be with you. And also with you. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, for all your blessings that are known, and also for those that are unknown to you, to us, we give you thanks for creating us in your image, making us different than all the other animals and creatures that you made, providing all that we need to live in your creation, for ruling over the nations of this world, but mostly we are bound to praise you for your great love with which you have drawn us to, to yourself in Jesus Christ and that you have made us to sit in heavenly places with him. Truly, he is our peace, the one who brings us back to you. And so, with all the hosts of heaven, we worship and magnify your glorious name, and forever praise you, saying, Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of hosts, heaven and earth are full of the majesty of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Most gracious God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, whose once offering up of himself upon the cross we now commemorate before you and participate in it, we pray that you would bless and sanctify us along with these your gifts of the bread and the cup which are set before us on this table, that we may receive by faith Christ crucified for us, that we may feed upon him, that we may be made one with him and with each other. And in union with Christ's offering for us, we do offer ourselves, our souls, our bodies, our whole being, to be a reasonable, holy, and living sacrifice. We ask you mercifully to accept this, our sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving that we make through Jesus Christ. And in fellowship with all the faithful in heaven and earth, we pray you to fulfill in us the promise of your redeeming love. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, to whom with you and the Holy Spirit, be the glory and the praise both now and forever. And together we say, Amen. Jesus took the bread and after breaking it, he gave thanks and said, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he also took the cup, saying, This cup is the cup of the new covenant sealed in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink it, do this in remembrance of me.
Jesus said, Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Take and eat this bread and drink this cup, and remember Christ's body and blood given for you. Receive it with faith and thanksgiving. Take and eat and drink. Let us pray. Lord, now let your servants depart in peace according to your word. For our eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all people, to be a light to lighten the Gentiles, and to be the glory of your people, even Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. The final hymn is number 296, All Hail the Power of Jesus' Name. <coughs>
so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. And the blessing of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be upon you all now and forever. Amen. Please be seated, and a uh, very good morning to you all. Um, I don't think I have too many uh, off-script announcements, so if you want to learn, turn to the Life Together uh, insert in your bulletin, um, we will be continuing with Christian education this morning. Uh, Elder Kelly will be leading um, on Gentle and Lowly, which is uh, nearing its conclusion. Um, Chapters 15 and 16, if you want to run out to your car and uh, pretend to have prepared uh, in between services. Uh, but uh, no, chapters 15 and 16 today. Um, please do remember uh, our ongoing um, uh, just concerns and, and ways we can minister to people around us. Um, obviously, for the uh, Celebrate Recovery group as it, uh, as it takes off, or at least takes off uh, in, um, in this place, that this would be a place of blessing to, uh, to that group. Um, food for the diaconal uh, pantry, um, which we continue to donate that, as well as supplies for the Arab American uh, Friendship Center. Um, the Friday evening prayer um, is uh, next in August, uh, third Friday. Next in August? No, that's incorrect. I stand corrected. It is July 21st, which is this coming Friday, I believe. Um, so uh, that will be at the Hannums, yes? All right, at the Hannums this coming Friday. Um, uh, the uh, have a uh, presbytery concern, um, which is listed in there the, the, with Harvest Church, uh, but there's a, uh, a trial upcoming, and um, there is, of course, a, a great benefit to having um, a denomination like ours where there is a structure for, um, for kind of dealing with problems both within congregations and between congregations and, and on a larger scale, um, but also uh, the, the, I guess, uh, still a, a sad and, and hard thing in that uh, there's um, often the, the trials like this won't, won't solve everything, but uh, please pray that, uh, that justice would be done and wounds would be healed and um, guilt would be confessed and um, and uh, sins would be forgiven. So uh, please do keep that in your prayers. Um, also continue, please, to pray for our ministry at the Oakland County Jail. Um, I was there a couple of nights ago, um, and just for the, for the inmates there, uh, I would say that the vast majority of people we deal with um, there are um, like substance abuse-related. Usually if you do something... Um, that uh, that requires more than like a year sentence, you get transferred to a, a prison or a more um, serious facility. Um, but it's amazing how many times you talk to these uh, 
the people there, and they, they know their Bible. Um, you know, they, they grew up in the church. A ton of them are, you know, grandpa was a pastor, dad was a pastor, um, and, you know, I fell into bad habits. I'm back here for, I was clean for five years. I, I talked to a guy the other night, he was, you know, clean for 10 years, um, but fell back into it, and now he's back in jail for the sixth time. And so there's a lot of stories like that. So please pray that they will not only... Um, um, you know, it's it's actually like jail does wonderful things in a lot of ways. Like by organizing, there's time. Um, a lot of the inmates they they're actually blessed by. Boy, I got 18 hours a day where I got nothing to do, and so I read my Bible and I you know do this and I talk to other other inmates here who are believers. Uh, but it's the as soon as they get out, they're under those old pressures, and, and a lot of them, well, you know, I stopped going to church and I'm scared to go back, or I might. You know, thinking about moving, thinking about moving out of state just to get away from the people who uh, push me or you know encourage me down this other path. So, uh, please do pray for them that they will. Um, usually, their 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 time of incarceration is fine. It's what happens the minute they set out and and don't have their their time organized and their um, their old friends start calling again. So, um, anyway, keep that. Um, keep them in your prayers and, and as well as us to have a continued opportunity to uh, share the gospel and share the hope that we all have and, and also share the fact that we're all deeply flawed and um, that, uh, that, that the Lord does forgive and can heal. Um, I think that is all I have, unless anyone has anything they'd like to add. Yes, please. Excellent. So, Amy, for those of you watching at home, Amy expressed a uh, gratitude for uh, the the interest and um, uh, I guess support for uh, Celebrate Recovery Group, which met here for the first time yesterday, and is um, I guess enthusiastically pursuing um, meeting here on uh, possibly different dates. But it sounds like the first meeting went well. Anyone else? Yes, Mrs. Wilson. So um, the Friday evening prayer will feature fajita meat anyway, and uh, so if you'd like to bring something to complement that. And um, also the Wilsons are spearheading an 
unofficial but uh, fellowship-based uh, trip to Easter Market on Saturday. And um, so join if you're interested. I thought maybe I should give you sort of the specifics for the trial. The trial is going to be August 4th and 5th, Friday and Saturday. So that, that way you kind of know, you, you can be thinking that way. So, yeah. Seeing no further hands in the air. Good morning, and uh, we'll meet back here for Christian Ed in whatever, 15 minutes, I guess.